Job's three friends came and sat down in front of him and said, Thou speakest as the foolish speak. Well, today I'm going to speak to you as a fool. Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss whatever does not fit into a sermon. And this one is covering the message, Has Your Ambition Gone Too Far? from Numbers 15 through 21. And oh my, do I love that opening. Yes, Denny will be back to talk about a time when he lived in inordinate ambition, ambition that is out of balance. So please, don't think that I'm calling him a fool or he's calling himself a fool. He lived a foolish period in his life. And I couldn't have fun. Life had become a burden and a chore, and I was under stress. And that's what the pressure box of inordinate ambition did for me. And then I have two reflections, uh, five insights into leadership that I didn't share in the message that we see from the Korah Rebellion, and then uh, some further reflection on Moses losing his temper and why he was punished the way he was. What did he do wrong? And... Um, a little bit about blame, how blame can be a very dangerous thing in our lives. But first, we need to summarize Sunday's message in 60 seconds or less. Ready? Go. So we raise the question, has your ambition gone too far? Ambition is a word that people can have negative thoughts toward or say, no, it's an important thing. So we looked at Cora. His ambition went too far for three reasons. First, it was all about him. Second, he replaced gratitude with grumbling. And third, he paid a price which far outweighed the prize he was aiming for. Yep, those three things mean your ambition has gone too far. Now, we may have been burned by our ambition in the past, and so maybe we're giving up. We're saying, ah, it doesn't go anywhere, or it's only hurt me, and so we give up ambition. I suggested that Moses did that at the end of the 40-year wandering, and that's why he blew up. He blew up because he gave up. He became grumpy uh, because he had nothing more he was going for. And so how do we deal with our ambition? Go on a road trip. Take it along with you, but do not let it steer the car. Done. Exactly 60 seconds. So on Sunday, we looked at Numbers chapter 16 through the lens of ambition. Has your ambition taken you too far? There's another way to look at it, and that's through the lens of leadership. We can see positive leadership in Moses and the wrong idea of leadership in Korah. So I want to share five lessons on leadership that I see in this passage, beginning with the first. Even great leaders have problems. Even great leaders have problems. Now, Moses is a fantastic leader. He has to be. Not anybody can take a bunch of complaining people who were once slaves and therefore very dependent on others and take them through a wilderness with not much to do, not a ton of provision apart from God giving them manna and water. Um, Moses had to have some incredible skills to keep the people unified and to prevent 
rebellion from actually happening, though they rebel a lot, nobody ever actually does lead a party back to Egypt. You don't have denominations forming or church splits happening. Moses somehow, obviously by God's grace, keeps it together. God used Moses as an incredible leader, maybe one of the best we can ever learn from. Yet, even the best of leaders still have problems under their leadership. Sometimes we think that if we just get a better leader, the problems will go away. So we tend to focus on the problems and then blame the leader, and so we want to get rid of the leader, get a new leader, and then the problems will somehow magically go away, right? We do that with our presidents all the time. Every four years, we're excited to vote again because maybe this guy will get rid of these problems. Well, maybe he will. Maybe he won't. But one thing's for certain. Problems will remain under him, whether he brings new ones or the old ones remain. Problems plague every leader. So we saw that in the first three verses, obviously, in the name of Korah. And Korah and his 250 rebels are unhappy about something. Clearly, if, if Moses was a perfect leader, would they have anything to bring against him? Maybe Moses didn't have anything going on wrong, and maybe they're just disgruntled. Nonetheless, Moses wasn't able to make everybody happy. No leader can make everybody happy. And so that's the first lesson we see. Even great leaders have problems. Second, people are not always satisfied with God's choice, especially when it comes to leaders. We can say this leader is chosen by God. Even then, people are not always satisfied with God's choice. So even if God led you to the position you're in or has put people under you, um, that doesn't guarantee that everyone's going to like you, that everyone's going to follow you, that everyone's going to be happy with everything that you do. We see this rather shockingly in verse 41 of number 16. This is after the rebellion of Korah is put down and God made it crystal clear that he has chosen Moses and not Korah, that Moses is indeed God's chosen. Even after this proof the earth opening up to swallow Korah and his family, the fire coming out from the presence of God to consume the 250 rebels. Even after that, the people are still not on board with Moses. In verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. People are not always satisfied with God's choice. Just have to expect that to happen. Third lesson. Rebellions insist on division. Rebellions insist on division. They create tension and they build a following. And usually they're siphoning followers from another leader. That's what Korah does. Korah and his two minions get 250 chiefs to follow them. So these are not just 250 random people. These are 250 powerful people. They're clearly lobbying. They're clearly trying to feel better about their cause by getting more people. Rebellions always insist on division. 
When's the last time you saw a rebel say, you know what, I don't like anything that's going on here, but I'll just go over here and start my own thing and not take any of your people? Like, wh- when, when do you see that? You, you don't see that. You always see people making a fuss, making a stink, having to talk bad about the leadership that is, and they therefore get followers to join them, which is baffling because it doesn't take an expert to point out problems. You know that? Any, anybody, everyone listening right now, we can all point out problems. It doesn't take special talent to do that. Yet this is what rebels do. They just speak about problems the loudest and carry the strongest opinions and are not shy to share them, and then people somehow want to follow that. Well, the Proverbs teach us to watch people's words because that will reveal the fool. But yeah, rebellions never go quietly. They always insist on division. And so Korah, well, you know, Korah, you could have gone and uh, pitched your own tent way out in the wilderness and had your own kids and have them grow up the way you want the world to be. But no, instead he insisted on splitting the entire camp of Israel. In response, God split the earth <laughs> and dealt with that. So one thing to reflect on is if you're unhappy with a context or situation, think about how you're handling that. Are you causing division? If you are, you're following the ways of Korah. Be careful lest the earth split beneath your own feet. Fourth lesson. If we fight to gain, we will fight to maintain. If we fight to gain, we will fight to maintain. Meaning, if we've had to prove ourselves to get to the top, if we've had to put people down to get to the top, then we will have to continually and endlessly prove ourselves to stay on the top and put others down to stay on the top. Another way to think about this is the very means you use to get to leadership is the very means you will need to maintain it. You are setting up your lifestyle by the way you climb to the top. Better is perhaps better is to simply be. Be the best at whatever God's put in front of you and don't seek to be better than others. Just seek to be the best you can be at what you have. And if God elevates you, great. If he doesn't, great. There's this amazing passage from the book I've been talking about. I won't, I won't go on and on and, and bore you guys, but uh, from the Tale of Three Kings, there's this quote about this. Um, we read, Men who speak endlessly on authority only prove they have none. And kings who make speeches about submission only betray twin fears in their hearts. They are not certain they are really true leaders sent of God, and they live in mortal fear of a rebellion. Authority from God is not afraid of challengers, makes no defense, and cares not one whit if it must be dethroned. Did you hear that last part? I I love that last part. I'm going to read it one more time. Authority from God is not afraid of challengers, makes no defense, and cares not one whit if it must be dethroned. Why? Because if God gave you the authority, 
you are quicker to recognize when he's saying, all right, I'm done using you. You did what I asked you to do. It's done. But when we are the source of our own authority, then when people come and challenge it, we feel like we have to continue to prove ourselves. We have to defend it. We don't have any standard to tell us that it's done. To hear that it's done makes us feel inadequate. But when God sets us up, then God can say, your task is done. And that's that. It's not because I'm unworthy. It's not because I'm a weakling. It's because I'm simply obeying the position that my master has put me in. It's a hard place to get to because we always want to validate ourselves. We want to know what other people think. We want to know that people approve or, or, or we want to fix what they disapprove in. And we want to feel like we're somebody, even if it's a little somebody. We just want to be a somebody. But fighting to become a somebody means you only have to fight to continue to be that somebody. Better to let God promote. Fifth lesson. We need leaders with meekness. No, I didn't say weakness with a W. I said meekness with an M. To be meek means that you can endure injury with patience and without resentment. That comes from the dictionary. If you're meek, you can endure injury with patience and without resentment. Now, we often think of meekness as weakness, I think, because meek people are not people trying to set themselves up. And so it's easy for them to be trampled on or to be neglected or overlooked in the midst of a world that is cl- that is fighting and climbing on top of one another, fighting to gain positions of leadership. And so we can often equate the meek with the weak or the poor or the down, um, but that's not true at all. In fact, to endure injury with patience and without resentment In other words, to endure injury without inflicting injury back upon those who gave it to you, that requires more strength than the coward who is injured and has to fight back and attack and defend himself. Now, yeah, we need meek leaders. Now, in Numbers 12, verse 3, there's this interesting verse. It's it's sort of hilarious because we believe Moses wrote the book of Numbers, and then you read this. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. It's just humorous to think of Moses writing that about himself. Um, It would almost make you seem to think you're not a very humble or meek person. But uh, likely what happened is um, a scribe added that in to uh, let us know that, look, when Miriam and Aaron were opposing Moses to his face about his new wife, He wanted us to know that Moses was the type of person who would endure this injury with patience. And he was not going to resent Miriam and Aaron for it. In fact, when Miriam became leprous as a result of this, he pleaded with God that she would be healed. He did not lift his nose up and say, it's what you deserve for challenging me. Do you know who I am? Moses saw it and immediately felt broken for her. That's why a scribe 
um, or maybe even Joshua at the end of Moses' life, felt compelled to let us know there that he's the meekest man on earth. And one also cannot help but think that after this incident with Korah, they further thought, nobody has had this kind of meekness. Here, Korah is leading a rebellion. And this isn't just two people now. This isn't just Aaron and Miriam accusing him. He's led influential people in the camp against Moses. This is serious injury to Moses. And yet, he endures it with patience. He knows his authority comes from God and he's not afraid of challenges. He doesn't make a defense for himself. It almost seems he doesn't care if he's dethroned. He doesn't care if Korah becomes a leader. In fact, Moses is probably thinking at this point, you really want to lead these people? Please take it. If only God would let me give it to you. But Moses hangs in there because he knows that Korah is not leading from God's heart. So God defends Moses. Notice that. God is the one who makes the earth open up. God is the one who brings fire. God is the one who defends Moses. We don't have to defend ourselves. Jesus didn't defend himself when people attacked him and put injury on him. He didn't say, hey, losers, you'll see one day I'll get back to you. No, he just, it says in Isaiah that he was as quiet as a lamb and he opened not his mouth. But when God raised him from the dead, yeah, that was God's answer. That was like the budding of Aaron's rod. Remember that in chapter 17. Okay, so is Aaron really going to be the chosen priesthood? Well, the 12 rods were laid out and only Aaron's blossomed. It was proof. God defended Moses. God defended Aaron. God defended Jesus. Jesus coming out of the grave was like that rod blossoming. This is the one I've chosen, it says. We don't have to defend ourselves. So the meek can endure injury with patience and without resentment. We need people like this in authority. Jesus picks up on meekness as well. Uh, One of the nine Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Does that sound sort of like rulership, inheriting the earth? When Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, who is going to be inheriting the earth with him? That's right, the meek. And now Denny Milburn will share with us about what he calls inordinate ambition. Basically, this is ambition that goes too far. And he has been vulnerable enough to share with us a time in his life when his ambition went too far. Job's three friends came and sat down in front of him and said, Thou speakest as the foolish women speak. Well, today I'm going to speak to you as a fool. Hopefully as a fool that has reversed himself 
because I believe that you can learn something from a fool that has reversed himself. The Apostle Paul used to say things like, I speak as a man. If he got boasting and bragging and speaking foolish things, he'd say, I speak as a man. Now, I think I'm qualified to speak to you because they say that nobody is completely worthless. You can always serve as a bad example. And so today, I might be a bad example, but I believe that you can learn something about inordinate ambition from that. If I sound like I'm bragging or boasting, I'm not. I'm throwing myself under the bus in order to teach you something that I've learned about being a person that had inordinate ambition in my 20s and 30s. Now, I could call this portion of the podcast uh, one easy lesson on how to lose your wife, kids, health, honesty, integrity, spirituality, and a multitude of other honorable traits. I could call it that. I could teach you in this one podcast how to ruin your life by being a person of inordinate ambition. Sunday night, Brandon talked about ambition. On one end of the spectrum, there was no ambition. On the other end of the spectrum, he had ambition, which he clarified as he went along. Another way of saying is that on one end of the spectrum, there's no ambition, lack of ambition. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's inordinate ambition. That ambition that goes over the top, that doesn't care about anybody or anything except success. You'll say anything to get ahead. You'll walk over people, climb over people, uh, slander people, backstab people. And it can really cost you. It can blow up in your face. Now, as I said, you can lose your wife, your family, your children, and all that along the way. And you can become a person that's not a very nice person because you're a person of inordinate ambition that doesn't care about anyone else. Abraham Lincoln said, I'd rather be a little nobody than an evil somebody. And believe me, if you're a person with inordinate ambition, you can become an evil somebody. Uh, you know the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But a person with inordinate ambition would say, yeah, I agree with that. Do unto others. Just do it first. Um, there's this quote that says, the ambition and focus that propels you to success can also be your downfall. It's like a rocket that shoots up in the sky, like taking you to your successes, but it can blow up, and it can also be your downfall. And I know that that's possible because I've gone through some things like that. Now, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with ambition and reasonable goals and like that. Uh, there are principles in the Bible of success and goals and uh, motivational psychology, let's say. Um, the Bible says a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. So, of course, reasonable goals and ambitions are good. you got to take care of your family and like that. But you can really go overboard with inordinate ambitions. Now, when I was in Bible college, I had spiritual goals. But I didn't have any financial goals. And so I thought, I need to have some financial goals and I adopted some, and 
I kind of went crazy with it, like an obsessive person. And I got into inordinate ambition uh, with these goals. And I'll tell you more about that as we go. They say that a lot of great things in his life have been invented or achieved by discontented men. And I think sometimes a discontented man can get a little bit of ambition, normal ambition, and that's good. Um, Thomas Edison probably got tired of sitting in the dark, so he got him a little ambition and invented a light bulb. You know, that's good. It does us all good. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell probably got tired of stretching a long string between his house and the neighbors and with a can at either end. So he thought, well, I think I'll invent me a telephone. And he did. So that's good. Ambition that helps other people, that solves problems, and a good kind of ambition. But there's another thing I found in motivational psychology. I went to a Bible college where many of the pastors had really fast-growing churches, and they were really into motivational psychology. And they used to meet together and have these mastermind groups and different things in like that. And when these professors came to the college and taught the psychology class, they didn't teach a regular psychology class. They taught motivational psychology. And we would read books like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And uh, these books would have things in them like anything the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. Well, I'm not sure it's quite true. Just because you can conceive it and believe it, it doesn't necessarily mean you can achieve every little thing there is. But the problem with some of these motivational psychology things is that they're humanistic, and they leave God completely out of the picture. I mean, you're the highest and the best that there is, and uh, you can achieve anything that you want to. Just leave God out of it and like that. Now, you can get into these principles of motivational psychology and set goals and do all kinds of things. And what can happen is you can create your own pressure box. And if you're a person of inordinate ambition, believe me, you're going to create a pressure box that's going to drive you crazy. And I know because I was there. It's like I did that. I've often said I was like a slave in golden change, and I was miserable. It's like I couldn't be happy. I had all kinds of successes, but I was like a slave in golden chains. And I got involved in real estate and buying houses and things uh, through principles of OPM, other people's money. And uh, I had a knack for it. I was really good at it. I could go around in my car with my briefcase, and I had everything in my briefcase to close a deal right on the spot. I could go in and sit down at somebody's table, and when I left 30 minutes later, I could own their house. I didn't need a real estate agent or an escrow or a bank or anything. I'd leave in an hour or so, and I'd own their house. That's all I needed. And I had a real knack for doing this, but I was obsessive, and I had inordinate ambition and a compulsive personality. And if I got one house, I'd want two. And if I got two, I'd want four. And if I got four, I'd want eight. I bought as many as 15 houses and commercial buildings in one year, uh, millions of dollars worth of stuff, all no money down because of ignoring ambition and the things I was doing and because I was good at it. Now, I created a pressure box where I couldn't enjoy myself, enjoy my life at all. Uh, you get a lot of tenants when you do stuff like that. And I came to dislike tenants 
a lot. Because anytime a tenant has a problem, it becomes your problem. If their car breaks down, they take it out of their rent and fix their car. If it's Christmas, they buy Christmas presents, they take it out of their rent and buy Christmas presents. And all their problems always become your, your problem. Now, the thing is, this caused me a lot of stress and pressure and like that. And I couldn't be happy. I'd go to the park and I'd see people there that looked like they had absolutely nothing. But they're laying in the grass and listening to the birds and laying in the sun and running and laughing and throwing frisbees and having a big time. And I couldn't have fun. Life had become a burden and a chore and I was under stress and I couldn't be joyous and happy like they were. Even though I had a lot and they had nothing, they were better off than I was. I remember one time watching the Olympics and this wasn't choreographed, but spontaneously the crowd put their arms around each other and started swaying back and forth and singing. And they had such joy and spontaneity that it made me feel sad. When I saw somebody really happy and really joyous, it had exactly the opposite effect on me. It almost got me depressed because they were happy and I couldn't. And that's what the pressure box of inordinate ambition did for me. My father used to say to me, what are you trying to do, conquer the world? And I'd say, no, Dad, I'm not trying to conquer the world, uh, but I don't have any job that has a retirement plan, and I have to do it for myself. If I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it, and so I have all these goals, and I'm doing all these things. Anyway, because of all this and the pressure box and all that, I decided I don't want that anymore. Uh, I opted for a life of simplicity. Um, a life of simplicity might say things like, I don't have to own a motorhome. I can rent one. I don't have to own a boat. I can rent a boat. And uh, it's much easier that way. I decided, decided to strive for mediocrity. I decided I don't want to be the best at anything. Because if I'm the best at something, and it's going to take all my time and my energy, I'm going to ignore my family, my kids, my wife, my health, and all that, and it's going to cost me too much. So I decided I don't want to be the best at anything. I want to be mediocre. I had people come to me and want to be my partner. I learned all these principles about no money down real estate. I wrote a book on it. I taught seminars on it. Everybody in the seminar would come up and say, hey, let's go out and let's buy some houses together. They wanted to be my partner. And towards the end, I would tell them, you know what? I'm not trying to buy houses. I'm trying not to buy houses. I'm trying to not do this anymore because it's, it's killing me, you know? Now, I think God was involved in a lot of this. I should have been a millionaire, a multimillionaire. Everything I did turned out fine. I never lost money on anything. And yet I thought I should be a lot farther ahead than I was. But the Bible says that God is a wall of fire, a wall of fire around us to protect us uh, from the enemy. Also, we read about hedges, how God had a hedge around Job where the devil couldn't get at him. I think God put a hedge around me, and he put a hedge around me to keep me from falling over a cliff. He put a hedge around me to keep me from being too successful because he couldn't trust me with the money, and he knew I'd get in trouble and self-destruct and go over a cliff and be my own worst enemy. Voltaire said the best is the enemy of good. 
you can have good ambitions and like that, and that's fine. But if you try to be the best and have inordinate ambition, the best is the enemy of good. And uh, that's entirely true. Now, I want to be a contented person. Uh, contentment is an art. And it's an art that the world has no skill in. Now, a person that is inordinate in his ambition is not a content person. They're contrary to each other. You can't have inordinate ambition and greed and avarice and all that and be a content person. You can't do it. But I would rather be a content person. Uh, a man that is content has enough. A man that is content has enough. Now, if you have enough to get to the end of your journey, you have enough. There's this fellow on television that irritates me every time I see him. He made $4 billion on his first internet deal. And yet, he's constantly saying, when I wake up in the morning, all I can think of is more money, getting more money. How can I make more money? That's all he thinks about. Now, he has enough money to get to the end of his journey. He doesn't need any more than that, but he's not content. Now, I say if you have one walking stick to get to the end of your journey, you have enough. If you have one walking stick to get to the end of the journey, you don't need 23 walking sticks, one of wood, one of silver, one of gold, where you have to guard them and polish them and take care of them and all that. Uh, one is enough, and that's all you need, and you can be content with that. Now, this inordinate ambition is contrary to contentment. You've seen the bumper sticker. It says, he who has the most toys wins. He who has the most toys wins. Well, in case you didn't know it, that's not true. Ask Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes, the first and second chapter. He had everything. If anybody ever had everything, Solomon did. And he looked on the work of all his hands, he said, it's all vanity, vexation of the spirit. And he wasn't a happy person, even though he had everything. And so you can have inordinate ambition and go for more and more possessions and money and all that. But I'm going to tell you something. A man is not rich by having more possessions. He can be rich by having fewer wants. The Puritans used to talk about it as you can get contentment not by way of addition, but by way of subtraction, not by adding to all those things that you have and that you think you need, but by subtraction and bringing what you want down to where you have fewer wants. You can be rich by having fewer wants. Now, I think a lot of this stuff that people do when they have inordinate ambition is short-sighted. I think this millionaire, billionaire, is short-sighted. Because everything in this life is transient, the transient nation of things. It's all going to fade away like the grass of the field, like the flower of the field, and it's going to be gone. A hundred years from now, you won't have any houses or commercial buildings or boats or yachts or motorhomes. It'll all be gone. The whole world is going down through entropy. It's all going to be gone. It's transient. The only thing that's going to be important are the internal things, eternal things. Now, people today major on the minors and minor on the majors. And what I mean is this life is a minor thing. How quick is your life? It appears for 
a short time like a vapor then vanishes away, the Bible says. It's as quick as an eagle chasing its prey. Or it's like a bottle of spilt milk, like, oop, it's over. And so this life is a minor thing. It's over quick, and it's all transient anyway. But everyone majors on the minor thing, this life. And they minor on the major thing, which is eternity. And so we need to major on the major thing and minor on the minor thing. And all this inordinate ambition and work and greed and everything you're doing for this life is really short-sighted and is ignoring all of eternity. Now, you get a man that's on his deathbed, you think he's thinking about houses and cars and lands and boats and motorhomes and goal setting and doing all that? He's going to die. He's probably thinking more about God and his relationship with God than anything else. And he realizes that everything he has is going to go away. I read about a Texan one time that was buried in a gold Cadillac, but I bet he didn't drive it out of there. It's just gone. And so realize that this life is just transient, and it doesn't matter that much in the long run. We're just pilgrims. Now, we've all read about the parable of the rich man in Luke 12, where he was really successful, and he didn't know what to do with all his stuff, and so he tore down his barns, and he built bigger barns and everything, and then he was just going to sit back and take his ease. He was self-sufficient. He didn't even need God anymore. He had stuff to last him till the end of his journey and more. And he said, uh, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, it says in that parable, but God said unto him, thou fool, this night shall thy life be required of thee. And so he has all of this stuff, and he's going to be dead. The end of the verse says, then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? You get all this stuff, you do all this stuff to ruin your life and your family and your health and everything, inordinate ambition, and then it's gone and someone else has it. Jesus said, lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And so he's saying the things of this life don't amount to that much. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And that's an excellent way to look at it. Now, do you have an ambition for money, inordinate ambition for money? The thing about it is, no matter how much money you get, you're going to want more. You get to that amount of money you think you need, and then double it, and you'll find out you still want more. A man that is always in want will never be happy and will never get enough. He'd be like a horse leech on the neck of a horse sucking his blood out. He just never gets enough. So uh, inordinate ambition about money is futile. Some people have ambition about being somebody. You know, the lust of the idol, the lust of the fresh, and the pride of life. They want to be on the top. Well, I'm not sure that you can achieve that always. And I know it's true. I read about a man who wanted to be Napoleon, but Napoleon wanted to be Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great wanted to be Caesar. And Caesar wanted to be God. <laughs> I can't help thinking about Lucifer, 
the anointed cherub that covereth perfect in his beauty. I mean, he had a high rank right up there under God, and he was beautiful, and he was an angel and all that, and yet he wanted more. He said in his heart he wanted to be like God and above God. Well, look what that got him in the long run. And uh, that inordinate ambition to rise and be on top and be number one uh, didn't do him any good either. So if we were going to close and pray, I would say something like this. Lord, when it comes to our ambition, let it always be within the bounds of your will and not an inordinate ambition. Let the scope of our ambition be broader than ourselves and with a view to the good of others. Let our ambition be wide enough to include the needs and aspirations of the least and the last and the lost of this world, both for their sake and for ours. Help us to be mindful of the transient nature of things in this life and deliver us from the uselessness of inordinate ambition. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, we come to that very hideous passage where Moses, being such a great and faithful leader, fails. And the punishment is swift and exact. It almost seems unfair. God tells Moses, because he struck the rock that would bring water to the grumbling Israelites, that because he struck it rather than spoke to it, Moses was forbidden to enter the promised land. After so much faithfulness, 40 years of being God's leader for these people who have tried Moses and God miserably, he makes this one mistake and he's out. Not even three strikes. Does it seem unfair? Absolutely it seems unfair. I personally feel bad for Moses. My goodness, what about, what about grace, God? It's hard to answer how he can be so gracious to the people, yet so dramatically swift and harsh to Moses. Now, I do feel a little better when you turn to the New Testament and see that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is speaking with Elijah and Moses. As John Corson says, God snuck him in. I do like that. But what happened here? What led up to this? And why was this such a crime? First, to kind of get a sense of Moses and where he's come from, we've got to understand he's at the, he's at the very last part of his life. About 40 years, he was a prince in Egypt. Then, well, he does make a mistake. He kills somebody and he's on the run. And then for the next 40 years, he's a shepherd in the wilderness. 
So he goes from sheep, uh, from prince to shepherd. And then he meets the burning bush. And Moses goes from leading sheep to leading people. From a shepherd of sheep to a shepherd of people, leading them out of Egypt into the wilderness. The very wilderness he had led sheep through. Now he's leading people. You might remember Peter and Andrew, James and John were fishermen. Jesus comes along and says, hey, follow me. You'll now be fishers of men. Moses, a shepherd of sheep, now a shepherd of people. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishers of fish, and now fishers of people. You see what God does. He takes that which we know how to do, that which we're good at, and will sometimes just change the context. Please don't belittle what you're curious in, what you're good at, what you've been practicing for years. See if you can't somehow change the context. How do, you, how do you apply it now to people? That might be one way to lead them. So Moses goes from a prince to a shepherd. And then, so he's been leading them through the wilderness and they get to the edge of the promised land. The people say, we don't want to go in. God's going to kill us. And then God says, all right. Well, 40-year death march, we'll let the next generation, your children, will go into the promised land. And so Moses then has to spend a third set of 40 years as a pallbearer. <laughs> I like that image. Moses is leading them. What's he leading? He's leading a 40-year funeral dirge. Like Paul, he's basically a pallbearer carrying the casket of the people of Israel. So he goes from prince to shepherd to pallbearer. Yeah, if I was a pallbearer, I'd probably be a bit frustrated. I'd probably make a few mistakes. I might lose hope. And Moses clearly does. So here's here's the story. The people are complaining. They're grumbling, which he's been used to by this point, especially in this pallbearer phase. Uh, they're thirsty. Well, this happened back in Exodus 17. Then God had them strike the rock and water came out. So we've been here before. Yet God told him specifically not to hit the rock, but to speak to it. To carry the staff of Aaron that blossomed, the, the staff that proved that God has chosen them. To, to, to hold that, but to speak to the rock. Now, many have seen in here a picture, the rock being Christ, which of course Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, he says that Christ is, he was the rock following them. Well, okay, Christ was smitten for us once, and now we get to talk to him. Grace. Struck once, and then you speak. Struck, then speak. We speak to Jesus now, because he's been struck for us. We speak to him, and the water of life comes to us. Well, Moses doesn't do that. He hits the rock which in the process would have smashed, crushed, ruined, killed the blossoms on that staff. Yeah, almost like it's disqualifying him in a sense. It's saying this is not the way God confirmed Moses' leadership. Moses was meek. What's happening here? When we choose to start leading in our own strength, and we're no longer meek. Yeah, we 
ruin the fruit. We're no longer leading the way God would want us to lead. So this is what God says, Numbers 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Why? Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Moses lost his cool. He got angry. Uh, Psalm 106 verse 33 says that they made Moses angry and he spoke foolishly. Yeah, Moses seemed to have a bit of an anger problem. Remember when in his first age of life, when he was a prince in Egypt, he wanted to free the people, so he killed an Egyptian? Yeah, that was his own strength. And, well, look, anger. Righteous anger, no doubt. He saw people being mistreated and he got angry. But he used the anger in the wrong direction. He would then become the shepherd and God would there teach him brokenness. Moses, you're a nobody. At least you're not the prince that you thought you were. You're going to be the prince that I'm going to make you into. And so Moses there learned that I can't just use my anger and my strength. God is going to transform my anger into this quiet strength that will lead people and it will give me the energy, the ability to endure despite grumblings and murmurings and complaining and rebellions. And Moses does that. Yet here at the very tail end, at the very tail end of everything, the anger returns. Which would imply that he's doing this in his own strength. So Moses fails because he's angry. Second, he takes credit. He doesn't give credit to God for the water coming from the rock. He takes the credit. In verse 11, it says that Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. Wrong verse. uh, Verse 10. Uh, Moses gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock. I thought God was supposed to bring it out of the rock when Moses spoke, so that the people would see God is providing this. Just talk to him. Stop grumbling toward everybody around you about every circumstance. Stop making life so negative and just start talking to God who wants to provide. That's what Moses was supposed to teach them. But he didn't. So he turned this on the people in anger. Here now, you rebels. And then he said, shall we? So now he starts taking credit. So Moses is angry. He's taking credit for something God deserves the credit for. And third, and finally, Moses misrepresents God. You failed to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, God said. This is really what it comes down to. So yeah, he's angry, which God wasn't angry. Yep, he takes the glory, which was supposed to be given to God so the people would see his goodness. So Moses robs God's opportunity of all those things. And now he's leading the people on to think that God is upset with them. 
That God wishes to strike them. That God needs to just vent a little bit. Not the God we follow. And whenever we portray God as angry or as disappointed or as vengeful, we're misrepresenting the God who showed us his son on the cross. That God is not disappointed. That God is not angry. That God went to incredible lengths to show us that he hurts for us, that he loves us. He would sooner be hit by the staff than to hit others with the staff. Well, Moses misrepresents God. And furthermore, if you want to say this, he messes up the picture. The picture of now it's grace and talking to God and now he's going to keep on beating God. Yeah, that's not the right picture. And if the staff blossoming is like resurrection, God's choice, like Jesus' resurrection, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that picture's ruined too. So that's what Moses does. But man, isn't it rough? Isn't it rough? Because it's not his fault that they're marching in the wilderness for 40 years. You can almost just feel for Moses. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, I would have done the exact same thing if I'm honest with myself. Moses is thinking, it's not my fault that we're marching through this wilderness for 40 years. It's not my fault that they're complaining yet again. But does blame ever benefit us? Yeah, Moses, it's not your fault. But does blaming the people make it better? Hear now, you rebels. What is behind those words other than anger? Blame. It's like, for 40 years I've been biting my tongue, but finally I'm going to say something. It's you rebels. That's why I'm here, not in the promised land. That's why I'm having to get water out of the rock for you guys rather than us getting our own water in our own land at our own homes. Yeah, there's 40 years of harboring blame. Does blame ever benefit? We should instead learn to accept that things are and things aren't. I'm not in the promised land. Okay, today I can handle that. But, but when we stop accepting that things either are or aren't, we want to blame. We want to assign reason for the way things are. And that's what blame is. It's, that's, it's them. They're the reason that I'm not in the promised land. And so now you get all worked up. And what blame can become for us is a sort of permission slip. From God to do whatever you want. Of course, not a permission slip actually from God to do whatever we want. It's a permission slip that we forge on God's behalf. Yeah, blame says, I can act this way because it's their fault. Or because they are in the wrong, I'm off the hook. And so when Moses says, here now you rebels, this whole death experience in the wilderness, the fact that I'm a big pallbearer, this is your fault. And so he hits the rock, 
possibly not even thinking about the consequences. Possibly thinking, how can I possibly do anything wrong in the presence of these people? And then he realizes it. Now, to Moses' credit, we do not read him defending himself. But, but God, you, you don't know what it's like to lead these people or, or God, no, 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 it was, Mo, it was Aaron's idea or no, no, I just had this one lapse in judgment. We don't see any excuses made and the blame stops instantly. To Moses' credit, he recognizes that he did wrong. And perhaps that's why God rewards him on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking to his son in the promised land. Perhaps. Because Moses handled his fall with grace. And, and harking back into the message, what was it? Um, well, not this last Sunday, but the one before. To fall on the trampoline of grace. Yeah, Moses could have fallen miserably and taken the whole assembly down with him. But he bounced right back up and continued on. As we'll see as we go through the rest of Numbers, Moses doesn't quit leading the people. He continues to lead. Because this isn't the first time that Moses has been broken. And this is where his meekness comes from. Moses usually lived a life saying, you know, things are, things aren't. Right now I'm a shepherd. I'm going to lead sheep. Oh, now I'm going to lead people. Okay. Now we're 40 years in the wilderness when we could be in the promised land. Okay. But in one moment, he throws all that out the window, perhaps because of blame. We need to stop practicing blame because it gets us into trouble. Why? Again, because we're assigning trouble to other people. And somehow it makes us feel, well, a little less worse than them. They're going to be punished, not me, because they're worse. It makes us believe that we're off the hook. So let's stop forging permission slips on God's behalf. God did not give you that permission. You forged his signature. I'm pretty sure that's not a good idea. Alright, and now for our preview into next Sunday's message, where we will be covering Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And the framework is pretty simple. In 21, which we didn't really cover much in Sunday's message, um, Israel begins to defeat some kingdoms. Uh, They're on the outskirts of the Promised Land. And they begin to fight some battles, and they begin winning some victories. And word's getting around, there's this people, they're hungry, they're devouring the land. And so Moab has a king named Balak. And in chapter 22, he sees Israel spreading out in his plains, and he's nervous. So he decides to go get a prophet, or someone who can uh, invoke curses upon another people on behalf of a god. You could almost call this a sorcerer or a wizard. He's going to work some kind of a magic, some sort of a sorcery, some sort of divination in which he can use the power of a divine being to invoke a curse on a people. This is Balak's solution 
to the Israel problem. Now, this is in chapter 22, he goes to uh, get Balaam's services. Chapter 23, we see Balaam's first and second, uh, the ESV calls it an oracle, or his prophecy, or his uh, incantation, or his sorcery, or whatever you want to call it, his magic spell. Um, and then chapter 24 is the third one. Uh, each of these, ironically, do not come out as curses, they come out as blessings. And then in chapter 25, we see um, the curses could not touch Israel. But in 25, their involvement with pagan women gets to them. And that, we'll learn later, was Balaam's advice. Look, I can't curse. I can't criticize these people. But we can get them to compromise. One of the things you might want to pray about as you read through. Okay, so something interesting in chapter 22. Uh, Balaam is told first by God, do not go with these people. Well, larger party comes to get his services. And this time Balaam prays again. And this time God says, go, go with these people. Just only say what I tell you to say. So, did God change his mind? And then on the way, after God had told him to go, uh, Bala- Balaam's donkey refuses to go forward because an angel of the Lord is standing before Balaam to hinder him. And the angel then reveals that he would have killed Balaam had his donkey not lay down on the job. Yeah, the donkey Balaam is beating because he's making a fool out of him. The angel says, I would have killed you if your donkey didn't save your life. What's going on? So God says, don't go. Then he says, go. Then he's standing in the way to kill Balaam for going. And then Balaam says, so should I go back? And the angel of the Lord says, no, you should go. But make sure you say what I tell you to say. (laughs) If you're a little confused on why God is working in such a mysterious way, you're not alone. Don't go. Go. Mm, I was going to kill you if you kept going. Okay, go. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, there's a really cool insight I came upon on this passage. And I don't want to tell you now. I want to save it for Sunday. But uh, see if God shows you why he's uh, being apparently fickle with Balaam. Uh, then chapters 23 and 24, again, of course, he are cool because he's prophesying, and instead of cursing, he's blessing. But what's really cool is he's on a mountain looking out over the camp of Israel. And there, as uh, John Corson famously reveals, shows to us, uh, the center of the camp would have been the tabernacle. And on the north, our three tribes camped. On the south are three tribes camped. On the east and west, three tribes camped. So the twelve are around it. But uh, many think that not necessarily around in a circle, but that the three camps would be uh, one closer, one behind, and one behind that. So that you actually have rows. So that if you see from the center of the tabernacle, you've got a row going up, a row going down, and a row going right and left. In other words, a cross. He's looking out over a cross from which... In the center, animals are being sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And that Balaam cannot 
curse because God's people are covered by the one who hung on a tree as a curse for us. We can't be cursed. Only blessed, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Yeah, because of the cross of Christ, we can only be blessed. We cannot be cursed. Which then begs the question, if we cannot be cursed, then why does it feel like Christianity is suffering at times? The answer is, yeah, we can't be cursed by others, but we can be our own stumbling block, which happens in chapter 25. Um, a Midian woman is brought into camp, and an Israelite man is going to make her his wife. And yeah, it's not a good situation. God is not happy. But Phineas deals with it, pins them both to the ground. And uh, yeah, God praises his actions there. Um, so we are our own worst enemy. I want you to notice in the prophecies of Balaam, uh, chapter 24 is typically the big one. It's where he goes into the deepest. Um, in verse 6, chapter 24, 6, he likens Israel to palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Do you not hear imagery of the Garden of Eden there? God is replanting his paradise on the earth in and through the people of Israel. That's why God makes such a big deal about them intermingling with the Midianite pagan women. He does not want the garden to be trampled on. He wants a place of blessing Waters from which all nations can drink. And then, of course, there's a big one in 2417. Uh, Balaam saying, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. So this is the him. He's a star will rise out of the tribe of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the scepter, the one holding the scepter, shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. And it goes on describing his victory. This many have said is a picture of Christ coming. It's a prophecy of the one ruler in Israel and um, the image of the scepter crushing the forehead of Moab. Well, do you remember in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, right after the initial curse is given the curse after the blessed garden of Eden is squandered by the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, there are the curses that start to come out. And um, in the midst of that, though, God gives hope. And in Genesis 3.15, he tells Eve and the serpent, look, there's going to be bitter rivalry between the two of you, between her offspring and your offspring. Eve's offspring being the people of God, the serpent's offspring being those who oppose the people of God. And he says that the serpent will bruise the seed of the woman's foot, but the seed of the woman will crush 
the seed of the serpent's head. So yes, the woman will will suffer some injury, but will ultimately crush the serpent. What do you read here? This one holding the scepter will crush the forehead of Moab. That's an intentional allusion to Genesis 3.15. Yes, the Messiah will come. Jesus has come and has crushed Satan's head. Although he was bruised in the process. So some things for you to look at. Uh, This theme of blessing, cursing, and who uh, can't hurt the people God and who can. And uh, why does... God seemed fickle with letting Balaam go and not go. So, happy readings. 